0: All right, open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1. Uh, if uh, you don't have a Bible, we uh, have copies of the Word in the pews. Uh, page, let me see here, 726 is the uh, page number in the Pew Bible. Um, for those of you who have already turned to page 5 of your worship guide, if you haven't done that, go ahead and do that now, uh, you'll, you'll perhaps have noticed Uh, We're just looking at one verse today, and then also you see there are only two points, and so I know you're probably thinking Tyler is going to preach a 20-minute sermon, and 20 minutes maybe on the first one, but yeah, it is only one verse, and um, you're not going to be standing for long because it's only one verse, but I'm going to invite you to stand as I read this one verse for us because um, the Bible is a unique book. It's a supernatural book. Uh, The Bible describes itself as alive and active, and so... um, So we stand for the reading of God's word because we want to be as receptive to it as we can possibly be. So with that in in mind, um, put your attention on the last verse of Jonah chapter 1. This is God's word. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. You may be seated. And I invite you to pray with me. Our Father, thank you for adopting us. Uh, if it were our choice, we would not have chosen to be your people. Uh, that's pretty clear throughout human history. We, we tend very strongly, in fact, we tend to want to be left to ourselves. Uh, we think we can, and so we think if we, if we could just govern ourselves and be left alone, we would do a, a decent job at least perhaps we even think we'd do a real great job. Um, and then uh, you you tell us something very different. You tell us that uh, we should not trust in ourselves or lean on our own understanding, but actually the way of life and joy uh, is trusting you. And that, that all starts, that all really is founded upon your decision to adopt us and to envelop us into your family and because you're our father you want to feed us and you say primarily you want to feed us through your word every word that comes from the scriptures that's how you nourish our souls and and uh, enlighten us and and cause us to see and savor more of this life to the fullest that you promise us and are insistent on giving to us in christ and so we ask god that you give us appetites now Uh, as we as we look at this passage and feast on your word and we pray this in the name of Jesus amen okay so one of the greatest struggles in life is the uh, and what you actually get so for example when I fly I want to uh, experience priority boarding I want to board the plane first even though that doesn't change when we take off I just want to get on there quickly And I want, um, at some point, I want the airlines to upgrade me to first class. I've never flown first class, but it's on my list of things that I want in life. To board with group nine. And I get to sit in coach, um, sometimes next to the bathroom, um, somewhere in the vicinity of the screaming child. Uh, And even with the noise-canceling earphones, that that doesn't always do the trick. Um, Here's another example. I want my primary care physician to just once say... You need, you need to eat more carbs. You need to load up on pizza. Go nuts. But uh, that's not what he says. What I get is, have you considered salad? Have you considered making salad a favorite food? Because that would be more healthy for you. Um, I want my kids to treat chores like screen time. They always want to be on screens. They want more and more screen time. And I want them to treat dishes and laundry like that. I want them to want to do the chores. But what I get is they treat chores like chores. And they grumble and they say, I don't want to do this. Why do I have to do this? This is not fair. If you asked Jonah, what do you want? Uh, Jonah would say, I, I want, very sincerely, very simply, I want God to punish bad people. The, the Ninevites, uh, the Assyrians, they are bad people. And, and history says that that is accurate. Uh, the, the, the Ninevites were very immoral, very corrupt, very oppressive, dehumanizing people. And Jonah thought, you know, I don't think it's too much to ask for God to pour out his wrath on bad people. I think that's a, a fair, good thing to want. So, so what's the problem? Because as we have already seen in the book of Jonah, uh, God's not going to give that desire to Jonah. He wants to, to give the Ninevites, these, these evil people, he wants to give them his mercy. And this is like nails on a chalkboard to Jonah. He does not like this at all. He cannot stand this. One of the main objectives of of the story of Jonah is to force you to see what you want. That's one of the primary objectives of the story. And you might hear that and think, well, that's not a very lofty objective. Uh, I mean, we already know what we want, and we feel pretty clear and confident about what we want. And God would say, yeah, that's kind of the problem you have these effortless cravings and you feel completely fine about what you want. He, God would say you're like that young man, that, that younger son uh, the, in the story that Jesus told in Luke 15. This, I'm not my dad anymore. I want to venture out on my own and I want to be the Lord of my own life. I want autonomy. I want to be able to decide for myself what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is bad, what is healthy, what is unhealthy. And God, in no uncertain terms, says, that's a problem. That's a problem because you are not self-existent. You are not self-sufficient. You are, in fact, a sheep. And God's a fact. You did not create yourself. You You did not determine or decide how the good life should look. You need to consult me. You need to trust in me and lean not on your own understanding. And Believe it or not, you'll never be happy, you'll never be truly joyful or free unless you get on board with this fact that you are a sheep and you're not self-governing and you need a shepherd. What are some other examples of things that we want? Things that just naturally we crave. Uh, All of us naturally would say, I want money. I want lots and lots of money. I don't think you can ever have too much money. And then you read scripture, you read the teachings of Jesus, and he'd say, If you have a lot of money, you're actually making life harder on yourself. It's easier for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a little sewing needle than it is for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven. You're you're actually making life difficult. And so you see all these warnings in the letters from James and Paul to the churches. You see these warnings and these things that Jesus uh, wants to tell us to heed in terms of wanting or, or, or desiring and loving lots of money. What's another one? We want everyone to like us. We all want everyone to speak well of us and to celebrate us and to affirm us. And Jesus says, that's actually really dangerous. Woe to you when everybody speaks well of you. You you, you don't know what you're asking for. It would not be good for you. It would not be healthy if you got what you wanted. We want to be sovereign over at least just one area of our lives. Perhaps there's a lot of us here this morning who are thinking, you know, I don't want complete autonomy, but I do want one little slice of life where I can say, this is mine. I, 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 have, I have competency and I have ex- expertise and, and sufficiency in this one area. And if God could just leave that area alone, not meddle, not deal, with, you know, get his hand involved with that one little area, then I would be happy. I'd be content with that. You know, there was a very competent, accomplished man who had a conversation with Jesus once. His name was Nicodemus. Uh, Nicodemus was highly educated, highly credentialed. Uh, He had actually earned a spot on the Supreme Court of his his nation. And when he interacted with Jesus, do you know what Jesus told him? Jesus said, you know, all of these credentials and all of these accomplishments, they, they really ultimately amount to nothing. And the best thing you could do would would be to become like a child, be born again, become helpless and dependent. In other words, you don't have sovereignty over any specific small area of your life. The best thing for you, highly educated, credentialed Nicodemus, would be for you to become like a helpless, dependent little baby. What a a blow to Nicodemus' ego. How how much more severely could Jesus have obliterated his paradigm of, of what success and what the good life looked like? You know, a lot of us might think, I want to keep a safe distance away from community. You know, I, I want to dabble in life together with other people, but as we've all learned in our lives, I mean, people can hurt you, they can stab you in the back, they can step on your toes, they can upset you and offend you, and so we think it's wise to sort of be cautious and protect ourselves and to sort of just you know have one foot in the world of community but don't fully commit and God would say if you actually got that that would be like a kidney uh, allowed to sit right next to a living body right a kidney that is close to a body but not actually in the complicated messy inner workings of the body it might feel more safe for that kidney in the short run but ultimately do you know what that kidney will will do If it's allowed to be close but not fully committed, it'll die. You've got to be on the inside where all the smelly, stinky, complex inner workings happen. And God says, "I, I know it's rigorous. God took on flesh. He knows the rigors of life together in an earthly family and in a church community. But he says, that's the only way you're going to have life. So to be lukewarm or half committed, that's not going to cut it. And again, Jonah would say, I want justice. I want God to punish bad people. I want God to pour out his wrath on the Assyrians, specifically that great city of the Assyrians, the city of Nineveh, to which God says, do you see what you're asking for, Jonah? Like in your heart of hearts, have you really wrestled with this thing you so deeply desire, God's wrath to fall on bad people? Because if you were seeing it clearly, you would understand that, If you want my wrath to fall on bad people, you are on the list of bad people. Jonah, no one more flagrantly embodies or epitomizes badness in the story of Jonah than you. If if you had to define badness, here's how how you could define it. Opposing God. Like if God has a preference, in this case a preference to show mercy to people, and you, you flagrantly oppose it, You stubbornly, obstinately try to prevent God from doing what he prefers or desires. God would say, I define that as bad. And don't you see, Jonah, that if I'm gonna pour out my wrath on bad people, you're at the top of the list. Do you not understand that? Do you know what you're asking for? Are are you at all convicted by, or, or at least do you wrestle with what you want? Because oftentimes what you so effortlessly want is not actually healthy for you. And because God loves Jonah, Jonah, even though he has tried to prevent God's mercy from prevailing on the Ninevites, he is now in the belly of a a great fish, uh, and he's traveling back toward Nineveh, whether he likes it or not. You know, Jonah, at a minimum, uh, needs a timeout. And so in God's grace, he gets a timeout, right? Three days, three nights, to just sit and think about, you know, where he is, where his uh, autonomous choices have led him because he he needs to wrestle with this, these things that he so effortlessly wants and how that doesn't always lead to what God would call the good life. Furthermore, and and maybe even more provocative and more profound, is the fact that this moment in Jonah's life is referenced by the boss of our organization, this this community called the church, the boss of the universe, in fact, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. This moment is referenced as the exclusive sign that God chooses to give us. If the question is, what do we get from God? God would say, I want to give you. What you get is the sign of Jonah. In the Gospel of Matthew chapter 12, it's actually in the Gospel of Luke and another place in Matthew as well, but just this this one point in Scripture we'll look at this morning. In Matthew 12, Jesus says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given except... The sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So, first of all, when Jesus says, An evil and adulterous generation looks for a sign, I would invite you to think about it like this Imagine you and I are chatting, and in the course of this conversation, I tell you, You know, my parents were abusive. They were, neglo- they, they were neglectful, right? They neglected me. All growing up, I sought for a sign of their love. You know, we all have love languages, and I wanted them to speak care and love into my life in a certain way. And I sought for this sign of their love, but it never came. And, you know, you're, you're a good listener, and you're trying to help me process stuff in life, so, so you say, okay, well, say more. What, what do you mean when you say your, your parents neglected you? And I say, oh, well, I'll... Yeah, that's easy. Well, it all began uh, the day I was born. And there were these people pressuring my mom to push me. I, push. They were saying, push him. Push. You should not push a child. That's just common sense. But she gave in to the pressure. And she pushed me. So that's where we got off to a bad start, right out of the gate. I, I was pushed. I mean, abuse charge right there. Now, now as years went on, you know, later I got older. Uh, you know, I was like 9, 10, 11. My mom would come home from the store and she knew full well that my love language was Doritos. I, I told her, when you go to the store, buy me Doritos. That would be a sign of your love. So she'd come home from the store, you know, and as she's hauling in all the groceries, I don't help with that. I just start rummaging through the packages, you know, through the grocery bags. And I'm looking for the sign of her love, I'm not finding it. And I say, Is this all? You know, as she's sweating, bringing in the groceries, middle of July. Is this it? Is this all you got? Yeah, that's it. No Doritos. You blew it. You could have have given me the sign of your love. You went to the store, I know they sell them, but you didn't bring them. And then I'd, you know, rummage through the bags and and I'd find, like, the antithesis of the sign of the love. I'd find broccoli and cauliflower. Right? I mean, this is not what I, this is not what I consider to be loving. Right? And then my mom has the audacity to say, help me put away these groceries. She knows. She knows that my love language is I sit and watch TV while she does the chores. So, what's the deal? Like, I'm seeking for this sign of love and it's just not coming. Now, if you heard me say that, and, and if you actually loved me, and you were my friend and you wanted to speak some, some honest truth into my life, you would, you would hear me say that and you would say, Tyler, with all due respect, and because I love you, I'm going to tell you this you are an evil child. You're evil. Right? You have all these signs of your parents' love. They shelter you, they, they f- feed you, they, they give you clothing. Uh, you have these disciplines, these chores that they uh, instruct you with. You have all these signs of your parents' love, and yet you still sought signs because their particular versions of care and love were not the ones that you craved. That, that's what's going on with the people of God. That's what's going on with Jonah. And we do this all the time. We we say, I'm not loved. I'm not cared for. When in fact, the version of love and care that God is giving us, it's just not matching what we particularly prefer. And God says, that is wicked. You are an evil and adulterous generation. It is evil and it is miserable to be chronically discontent and always grumbling and incessantly preoccupied with what you want rather than what God is giving you. So here's my challenge to you. Just take one week. There are 52 weeks in a year, okay? So I don't think this is too much to ask. Take one week out of the 52 and just don't complain, okay? After this one week, you can go right back to complaining. You can grumble as much as you want, but just try it. See it. You might might like it. And just take one week and refrain from using the phrase, that's not fair. Take one week and refrain from, you know, airing your critical observations and comments, one week, and just don't complain. Don't huff. <sighs> life is so hard. Right? You're sending the message to everybody in your, in your circle. This is, this is hard for me. Just one week. Don't seek for a sign of, of what you crave, but just be thankful for what God has already given you. Just bask in the signs that God has already put in your life. So breathing. Let's start there. You need to breathe. God has enabled you to breathe even without thinking about it. While you're sleeping, you're breathing. Wake up and say, God, thanks that's super helpful. Super helpful to not have to think about breathing all night long. Really, really grateful, right? If, if all the oxygen went out of this room, all of you would be very aware of this fact that, that air is good. And you being able to take it in, that's a really helpful thing to do. Be really grateful for that. Be thankful for the people in your life. And you guys hear me say that and you, you're thinking, wait, what? Thankful for the people? People aren't where I run into problems, People are, are where I, I find the most reason to grumble and gossip. Okay, just one week. One week, just figure out, like, what do I actually like about some of these people? What, what can I honestly, sincerely say? I'm thankful for this. I'm thankful that this person's in my life. And perhaps even those people who have different perspectives and different ways of doing things, maybe you can truly find a way throughout the course of this week to say, you know, I actually do really appreciate some of the, even those differences of opinion. I really think that's helpful and healthy for me. Here's an easy one, coffee. You're Presbyterians, I know, but you can say amen to this one, I know for a fact. Coffee, so good. What a, what a gracious gift that God gives you this amazing you know, caffeinated beverage to start your day. I'm serious, can you, can you just say, God, at the least, I, I am grateful for this substance called coffee. It's, it's amazing. Thank God for reading, not not screens, not your phone, reading. Like good old-fashioned pick up a book and read. The fact that you, you're literate. The fact that God wants to communicate to you through a book. That's an amazing thing. Thank God for that. Thank God for work. Yes, I know there's lots of stuff to gripe about regarding work and all of the toil and all of the hassles that come with work, but for one week, just say, I'm thankful that I can work. I'm, I'm thankful that God has given me the capacity to work. I'm thankful for the people I get to work with. These are good gifts, and they are signs of God's care and love. And the best thing we have, God would say, is a relationship with him. In, in all of it, having a cup of coffee, going to work, hanging out with other people, God would say, in all of it, the main gift that I'm giving you is knowing me. Because all of life is designed for you to have fellowship with God, to know God better and better through each circumstance, through each scenario in life that you encounter and navigate. This is what God wants for you more than anything else. He wants you to have fellowship with him. He wants you to be joyfully excited and and, uh, in awe of the fact that you get to have union with a master so merciful and so generous as as him. Uh, Jesus tells this parable, this short story in Matthew chapter 20, um, and he describes what the kingdom of heaven is like. He says the kingdom of heaven is like a a master who hires laborers to work in his vineyard. And y'all have probably heard this story before. He, He hires people at the beginning of the day, and he says, let's agree on you working a full day for a full day's wage. And they say, that sounds great. Would love that. And then throughout the day, he hires folks, even in the 11th hour, with one hour remaining on the workday clock. He hires people. And at the end of the day, he's, he's paying his laborers, and he gives the people who only worked an hour a full day's wage. And so the people who were hired at the beginning of the day, they start to grumble and complain. And they start to accuse the master of being unjust because they got a full day's wage, and the people who only worked an hour got a full day's wage. And God would say, You need to be thankful, not just that you're getting paid, but that you get to work for a master who is so generous. Why are you wasting your time gossiping about me and grumbling about me? You need to be thankful that I am so merciful and so generous. He says, do you actually think you're right to begrudge me of my generosity? That's what God is teaching us all throughout this story of Jonah. He's saying, you not only have to come on board with the fact that I want to show my my mercy to people who you might not think deserve it, but you need to come on board with the fact that you get to know and have fellowship with a master who operates like this. That's what you get. You get to know and have a relationship with a king and a savior who is highly selfless and sacrificial. He's a servant-hearted, generous, merciful Savior. And so Jesus, he puts the emphasis here. He takes this one moment in Jonah's life, and he says, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And what Jesus insists that you see is that while Jonah was obstinate and stubborn and opposed to God's desire for showing sinner's mercy, Jesus pursued that redemptive scheme as the joy set before him. Jesus came and he was crucified and he was dead and buried, not because people took his life from him, but because he laid it down of his own accord. Because he was in full upon sinful people who, absolutely, you and God might agree, don't deserve it. But it's not about what you deserve, it's about God's free, unmerited favor. And Jesus, for the joy set before him, executed God's plan of redemption, even to the extent that he gave his life and spent three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So we got to see what Jonah gets. Because in a very personal, experiential sort of way, Jonah, for all of his opposition to God's plan, is actually receiving the privilege that God talks about in Philippians 3. Philippians 3 says, here's the goal of your life the best thing that could ever happen to you in this earthly existence, that you would know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and that you may share in his sufferings and become like him in his death. That's what Jonah's getting. Y'all, more intimately, more manifestly and experientially than anybody in this room, Jonah of God's sufferings. He, he gets to be the sign of the Savior who spent three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah has an amazing opportunity to experience fellowship with God in this moment. And whether he's aware of that or not, whether he's embracing that or not, God is giving him that gift. And God wants to give you that gift. God is saying to Jonah, I'm not going to let you have what you want right now. I'm not going to pour out my wrath on the nations, Jonah. Not right now. I'm going to envelop you into the fellowship of my sufferings. So think about it like this we know we're a long way off, we're in July, but think about December. Think about Christmas, okay? Christmas morning, you, you know, you wake up, you make your way to the living room to just scope out the stockpile of presents, right? You're just going to kind of like shake the packages, kind of get a sense for what's there before breakfast. But when you get to the living room, you don't find any presents. On this particular Christmas morning, there are no presents, but old Saint Nick is sitting right there. Santa Claus is sitting right there, you know, and he's He's sort of unbuttoning his coat. And he's just lounging. He's hanging out. It's casual. And you say, Santa, first of all, you, I, I shouldn't be seeing you. I think that's part of the rule. We shouldn't be seeing each other. Secondly, and more importantly, where are the presents? We have a deal. This, the arrangement is we let you break into our house. We don't call the cops. You leave a bunch of presents. You're breaking protocol. And, and Santa says, yeah, I want to talk to you about that. You know, I... What I really want, all these years, what I've honestly really, really wanted was just to have a relationship with you. I would love to just have fellowship with you. i just like to hang out with you. And in fact, you know, I am still in the drop-off presence at people's house business. So what I really would like to invite you to do is come with me in the frigid temperatures, flying at high altitudes, you know, suffering in the cold. And I want you, I want you to come with me and experience the fellowship of my sufferings. And it's not because I'm mean and I want you to suffer. It's because I want us to really bond. I want us to know each other more intimately. And this is how I want to get at that. That's what God's saying. He's saying, you you treat me like a vending machine. You treat me like Santa Claus. Okay, let's go with that. I want you to have a relationship with me. I I still want to give you good gifts. I know how to give you good gifts, and that's not going to stop. But more deeply, I am concerned with us having a relationship and I want to envelop you into this experience of fellowship in my sufferings. This is how true life and true growth works. Jesus in John 12 very succinctly says, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it it, it can't grow, right? A, A seed, this small little insignificant thing that already feels vulnerable and helpless, it has to go through this process, this experience of feeling even smaller. It has to fall. If you can kind of personify what a seed feels in that moment. I mean, I bet that feels pretty scary. That's nerve-wracking. You already felt small dangling on this limb, and now you're falling, and then you hit the ground, and and you die, right? You go into the earth, and God says that, believe it or not, is how life and growth works, resurrection life. In the earth, you'll germinate, and you'll just develop roots, and you'll become a little seedling. You'll sprout, and you'll grow. You'll grow into a, a big oak tree, And then kids will hang tire swings from you, and you'll you'll provide shade for people. It'll be be life to the fullest. That's how true life and growth works. And it's not what we want, but God very mercifully says it's what you get. In all of life, God's saying, this is what I have for you. Again, this applies to every sphere of life. Your work, your hobbies, your summer vacation coming up, your, your interactions with your neighbors, your coworkers. In all of life, God's saying, this is what I want to to envelop you into. You get to share in my sufferings and know the power of resurrection life, new life. In 2 Timothy 2, it's really fascinating. Paul's letter to Timothy, he says, first of all, Timothy, you are my child, which Timothy could take offense at. To be called a child, if you wanted to construe that as an offensive thing, you could. But God says this all throughout Scripture. You need to become like a child. You are referenced as a sheep and a child, these helpless creatures. And so it's a good thing. You're small. You're not sovereign. You need to recognize that. That's the bedrock of health. And, he, and Paul says, Timothy, my child, be strengthened, not in accordance with your sufficiency or your, your sense of competency, but be strengthened by the grace that is found in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to say, you have an opportunity as a disciple of Jesus to share in the sufferings of Christ. And then he gives three illustrations. You can read this for yourself later today. These three illustrations of what sharing in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings looks like. It looks like life as a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. These are the illustrations that Paul provides. And in all of these examples, you realize you're going to feel small. You're going to feel silly and weak and tired, and you're going to feel sore, and you're going to get blisters. It's going to feel like suffering. I mean, take farming, for example. You can't not feel small if you're a farmer because you can go out there and you can till the soil, right? You can prepare the land. You can sow the seeds. uh, The crops can grow. You can tend the crops. And then a hailstorm can wipe it all out in just one day. You're aware of that if you're a farmer. And if you're working with a farmer, you're aware of that. And there's something there that's really healthy, that you're always bumping up against this fact that you don't want to have to deal with, but the fact is you're small. You're not in control of everything. If, if you're an athlete, you're going to look silly. Um, about a month ago, um, Tim Blumenstein took myself and a couple of guys spelunking. And the first thing he did was make us look like fools. He's like, I go get the oldest, sort of junkiest clothes you can get, because we're gonna get like he called it next level muddy, and then we had to like wear headlamps and uh, knee pads and like there are pictures of us that I'm not gonna share with you, and we looked silly. We looked silly. And then if there was footage of us in the cave. It, it just amplifies the silliness because it's super muddy and slippery. And so, I mean, it looks like we're ice skating and like you can get lost every 12 feet. You can make a right-hand turn when you should be making a left-hand turn because it's very disorienting in this dark, you know, small cramped space in a cave. And, you, and you're going to look small. You're going to look silly. All, all athletic endeavors have this potential, right? Just the outfits alone. If you go cycling with Michael Domros, he's going to make you wear spandex. You're going to look silly, okay? So you're going to not know everything right away. You're going to have to learn the techniques and all of the particulars of the sport, and then you're going to feel tired. You're going to feel out of breath and out of shape and winded, and you're going to get blisters, and you're going to feel weak and vulnerable. And in all of it, if you're with God, the Holy Spirit's going to tell you, but you're going to love it. Because isn't that the way it goes? I mean, look at people who, like, run marathons. I mean, that is suffering at the highest level. And yet they sign up for a marathon after a marathon after a marathon. And you ask them, why are you doing this? Why are you killing yourself? Literally, medical professionals will tell you, you're killing yourself. Biologically, your body is shutting down when you participate in these events. They say, I, I love it. I've acquired the taste for it. The, the community of runners, the fellowship of suffering, it's what I love. I was hanging out with my my buddy John this past week. He's getting ready to have his first child. I would add to this list of Paul, soldier, athlete, farmer. I would add parenting. He's getting ready to have his first child. And I said, yeah, yeah. Are you excited? First child's due in early September. And he said, I'm scared. I'm nervous, honestly. I don't know what I'm doing. I've never had one of these kids before. I mean, I don't know what to expect. I don't know how to be good at this. And in all sincerity, I looked at him and I said, You're going to love it. I mean, don't get me wrong. You're going to feel weak. You're going to feel super confused and tired and out of control. Yeah, you're going to feel super small and silly oftentimes, especially if you take that kid on an airplane. You're wrangling all that equipment. And your kid, you can't get it quiet and content. I mean, you're going to feel silly. You're going to feel small and vulnerable. But you're going to love it. You're really going to love it. You're going to experience joy and love and fellowship on levels that you didn't even know existed. That's the sign of Jonah. That's what God's saying, I want to invite you in to this experience, fellowship in my sufferings. And again, whether Jonah is aware of that or willing to embrace that at this moment in his life, that is what God is offering. That is what he's saying you get. It's what he wants for you. It's not the sign of a political figure who will make Israel great again. That's what the Hebrews in Jonah's day and Jesus' day wanted. They wanted the days of David, the days of King Solomon, the glory days. That's not what God's offering. It's not a sign that says, just be true to yourself. You do you, whatever makes you happy, You know, boast in your achievements, Uh, be proud of who you think you are. It's not a sign of that. It's a sign inviting you to boast gladly, all the more gladly, in your experiences of weakness. So that the power of Christ may prevail in your life. It may rest upon your soul. It is a sign promising you a savior who won't come to achieve what we might call or or perceive as victory, but a savior who will die. A savior who will come not to be served, but to serve you to such an extent that he lays down his life for you. And then after three days in the grave, he's gonna rise from the dead. It's a sign that bids you to come and share in Christ's sufferings, to personally experience the freedom, this mysterious freedom of fellowship with this kind of redeemer. I wanna end by just inviting you to think about Moses. I know we're preaching through Jonah right now, but frankly, Jonah's a pretty bad example or picture of this. So I I wanna contrast Jonah with Moses, okay? Let's think about Moses for a second. What did Moses want? When God called Moses, to, to go back to Egypt and to deliver the people of God or participate in the deliverance of the people of God from their, their oppressors. What did, you, what did Moses want? Moses wanted to be left alone. Moses very candidly and very consistently told God, sending me, an 80-year-old man, a Midianite shepherd, back to Egypt where I already failed. I was already rejected by the people of Israel. I already failed in my prime, in my 40s. It's a bad idea, and I'm not interested. I do not want to deal with the hassle of facing my rejection and my failure and all of those felt insecurities, and I definitely don't want to face the hassle of come out of slavery, and then we end up in the wilderness, and you know as well as I do, God, what they're going to do. They're going to grumble and and be obstinate and stubborn and they're going to complain against me and tell me that I'm a lousy leader and I have no interest in that. I don't want that kind of suffering. And God says, I hear you and you got to go anyway because I love you. And because I love you, it won't be you alone, Moses. It will be you with me. And in the thick of all of that hassle and heartache and stress and confusion, you're going to know me better. And that's what it says. The commentary on Moses' life, you can read about it in the, the book of Hebrews, the 11th chapter, it says, Moses endured all of that. You know how he endured all of that? By living by faith, seeing him who is invisible. And that's not just a philosophical, uh, you know, conceptual thing. That's a concrete, real-life, everyday thing. Every day, God says, endure, not in your own strength, but endure by seeing him who is invisible. And specifically, always focus on, always be considering the reproach of Christ. Because you don't just have a God who's powerful flesh with the expressed mission of coming and dying for you. Bearing the shame and the reproach of the crucifixion and the forsakenness of God as your substitute so that you could enjoy the righteousness and full life that is found in Jesus Christ. That's what God wants to give you this morning. That's what he wants to give you every day of your life. So let's pray and ask God to help us be receptive. God, we thank you for the sign of Jonah. We thank you uh, that you don't give us what we want all the time. We thank you that oftentimes you, you, you really do give us good gifts. But ultimately... You give us something that nobody, not even the people who rigorously studied the coming Messiah, knew they needed or or wanted. You gave us a crucified king. This is foolishness to the world. This is a stumbling block to the world. And you say, this is where you will find joy. This is where you will experience uh, the bedrock, an epicenter of true life to the fullest. This is the power of God, to save people who desperately need saving. And God, we pray that our lives would be cruciform, that our lives would, would be full of manifestations of us uh, having the mind of Christ, that we would go out into the world or go home or interact with our relatives or friends and we would, we would seek to serve instead of be served. We would, we would give attention to the, the thoughts and uh, the needs of others, even more so than our own that we would be servants like our Savior. And that'll be hard. That'll be something that it requires a lot of endurance and, and causes us a lot of pain and suffering. And yet, this is where you say we will experience fellowship. So we pray that you would uh, give us hearts for that. Give us the mind of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.